we uh, began this series of sermons on the book of First Samuel uh, now some 14 weeks ago. And this series actually will conclude next week. Uh, if you've been following the series, uh, you may have noticed that occasionally I jump around a little bit. It has pleased the narrator to intertwine the stories of David and Saul. And I have occasionally disentangled them so as to present the story in chronological order. Uh, in order that the story might be a little bit easier for us to follow. For us who, as Westerners, we, we usually expect to read accounts of historical things in the order in which they happened. So that's why I've done that. The narrator, on the other hand, has intertwined the stories of David and Saul so as to make various theological points by way of comparing them an exercise in compare and contrast, uh, like uh, you did in English. Um, Therefore, we're looking at two texts today that describe for us the very end of Saul's life. Uh, Next week, we'll look at chapter 30, which, although it is not the last chapter in 1 Samuel, it is, I think, a good one for us to finish on because it allows us, again, in line with uh, Western literary expectations, it allows us to finish this series on a happy ending. Um, These texts today are difficult, aren't they? Uh, They're challenging, uh, they're confronting. Uh, Our story starts in chapter 28, verse 3. And verses 3, 4, and 5 set the scene for us. We are reminded that Samuel the prophet has died. Actually, we knew that already. We were told that at the beginning of chapter 25. But we're reminded of it here because we need to remember that Saul the prophet has died. We're also told that at some point, and we don't know when, and we don't need to know when, but we're, we're told about how Saul had expelled all the clairvoyants and spiritists from the land of Israel. And that shouldn't surprise us. Saul is a religious man who believes in Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible. And Deuteronomy, the law of the Lord, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 18 says this in chapter 18. Moses wrote, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses writes. A prophet like me, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So at some point in the past, Saul has obeyed um, the Bible and cleansed the land of all such practices and all such practitioners, uh, at least as far as he knew. And that shouldn't surprise us. Saul has shown us repeatedly that he believes what God has to say. And in terms of setting the scene, that's the second thing we need to know. The third third thing we need to know, the the narrator reminds us of something, in actual fact he's only just told us, and that is that the five kings of the Philistines have gathered their forces for one massive campaign against Israel. 
David, at this point in time, is among them. But that's another story, as we know. And poor old Saul is terrified. And it's, it's not difficult and it's not inappropriate for us to feel sorry for Saul. I mean, it's horrible to be that frightened. He's just beside himself with fear. He's scared out of his wits. And in verse 6, we find out that Saul tried praying, but praying didn't work. Saul needed advice, but no advice was coming. The Lord was keeping his mouth shut, saying nothing, not by dreams, not by Urim and Thummim, nor by prophets. So in desperation, Saul turns to a medium, to a clairvoyant. And in what follows... Two things generally surprise people. Firstly, um, many uh, readers of the Bible assume that this kind of uh, occult activity, you know, Ouija boards and seances and fortune tellers and astrology and all all that stuff like that, many assume that all of this is hocus-pocus nonsense without any kind of basis in reality. But here we have a Bible passage that not only describes a seance, but indeed authenticates it as a spiritual experience. The second thing that surprises people is that Samuel, or what appears to be the spirit of Samuel, comes out of the ground and therefore seems to us to rise out of what we would understand to be hell. This then is a surprise. Why isn't Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, who's known the voice of the Lord since he was yea high, why isn't he with the Lord in heaven? Uh, And um, these two things come as a great surprise. I'd like to answer both concerns, both surprises together. Um, When we come with New Testament eyes to this passage it's very, very difficult to understand about Samuel. Is, is this Samuel or is this a deceiving demon disguised as Samuel? And in actual fact, that point has been debated vigorously since the second century. Uh, and, and there are lots of people on both sides of the debate. For today's purpose, I'm going to assume it is Samuel. And there are two reasons. Firstly, I'm going to assume it's Samuel because the text assumes that it is Samuel. The narrator assumes that it is Samuel. And the second reason I'm going to assume that it is Samuel is that it is completely in line with Old Testament expectations. The Old Testament understands consistently that when people die, they all, rich and poor, uh, um, great and small, righteous and wicked, they all descend to a place named Sheol, the place of the dead. Uh, In your pew Bible, um, you you might have Sheol referred to sometimes as as the grave or uh, the the, the place of the dead um, uh, or the resting place of the dead. You'd usually find a footnote. And if you follow the footnote down to the bottom of the pew Bible, it'll say Hebrew Sheol. Uh, Sheol is the name of the place. Sheol is a place of rest, a place of sleep. It is a place where all your dead ancestors are. It is not a place of punishment or torment in particular, 
But neither is it a place where you experience or enjoy any of the pleasures of the living. It also seems that despite the fact that in Sheol you are asleep, yet and nevertheless there is some kind of awareness of where you are and who is with you. The, the horror of Sheol, to the Hebrew mind, the horror of Sheol is not that you're in torment, but rather that you are cut off from God, totally. God is a God of the living, not of the dead. You, you, you meet God in this life, certainly not in death. Indeed, God hates death. Uh, to be dead is to be cut off from God. As it says repeatedly in the Psalms, nobody praises God. Nobody sings or prays in Sheol. So this Old Testament text, basically it would have surprised no one in the years before Christ. Samuel is exactly where everyone would have expected him to be. He's resting in Sheol. Only uh, two people, by the way, only two people in the entire Old Testament escaped from Sheol. Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 and Elijah uh, in 2 Kings 2, one centuries uh, before Saul, one couple of centuries after. They both went straight to be with the Lord. They did not die. God does not hang out with dead people. Death revolts God like perhaps nothing else. So this passage finds Samuel exactly where we'd expect to find him. The passage assumes that he, it is, in fact, Samuel who enters the picture. Uh, the narrator knows that it's Samuel. Uh, Samuel enters the picture as, as a ghost or a spirit uh, in, in, in verse 13. But how, is it, how could it possibly be that Samuel answers the call of a clairvoyant? Well, I don't know. I, I just guess simply that God allowed it to happen. God's total prohibition against anything even remotely occult in both testaments makes perfect sense. What's actually happening here is the Garden of Eden all over again. The question is, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe God or a serpent? Whose word do you trust? Like Eve... Saul thinks that actually, oh, well, God's abandoned me. God's, God's, you know, God doesn't really have my welfare in his heart. I need to take matters into my own hands and grasp what I need. This is the Garden of Eden all over again. The basic assumption is God can't be trusted. Well, there are two people groups, two ethnic groups that we need to know about or be reminded about if today's text to be, to be fully understood. Um, firstly, it's the townsfolk of Jabesh Gilead who take down the bodies of Saul and his sons at the end of chapter 31. They take them down from the walls of Bethshan and they give them an honorable funeral, treating their bodies with care and respect and mourning for them seven days. These people loved Saul, and rightly so, for the very first thing that Saul did as king, way, way back in chapter 11, was he saved that city, the city of uh, uh, Jabesh Gilead, from the Ammonites. Saul made heaps of mistakes, but he occasionally got things right, and that was one such occasion. The other group of people that we need to know are the um, Amalekites. Um, actually, we're going to talk about these guys uh, more next week. God commanded Saul, way, way back in chapter 15, to wipe the Amalekites 
from the face of the earth. Hey, you might be thinking, that sounds like genocide. To which, of course, the answer is, "Mm, that's because it is. Of course it is. No one has the right to commit genocide, except God alone, of course. It's not immoral for God to destroy things that he himself has made. And God was deadly serious. But Saul failed to take him seriously enough. And it is also Saul's second strike. This was the second time Saul, as king, had failed to keep the Lord's command. And on that basis, God rejected Saul as king. Now, we need uh, um, to know, and I've said this before, but we need to know that God did not reject Saul as a person. He wasn't thrown out of the covenant people of God. He just lost his job. He was fired. He was rejected as king. And now through the mouth of the spirit of Samuel, Saul hears that his worst nightmare is about to come true. Verse 18 of chapter 28. Verse 18. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands, into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Again, although various interpretations of what's going on here are possible, my interpretation, my understanding of what's happening here is that this message is from the Lord to Saul through the mouth of the prophet. It's not an oracle. The Lord isn't directly speaking through Samuel. Rather, the spirit of Samuel is remembering and explaining that which he'd spoken to Saul way back when he was still alive. With reference to previous oracles, the spirit of Samuel is saying, this is that. I told you so, in other words. And he brings him a word of judgment. Now, there are a couple of things that are useful to keep in mind when talking about God's judgment. The first is that God's judgment is usually ironic. Um, irony is a standard feature of God's judgment. Um, if you treat me with contempt, I'll treat you with contempt. Uh, um, if you think I'm your enemy, I'll act like your enemy. If you think you know better than me, I'll let you sow what your ris- uh, I'll let you reap what your wisdom has sown. Uh, Jesus said, "For judgment." I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Uh, Irony, the bringing together of two truths to reveal a third truth. God's judgment against Saul is ironic and it's along the lines of, well, if you won't listen, I won't listen. If you won't listen when I speak, then I won't speak. If you won't take action against my enemies, I won't take action against yours. God's judgment is ironic. He gives people what they want, not what they don't want. How will Saul respond? Well, he breaks his fast, he gets up, and he leaves. He straps on his armor, puts on his sword, and he goes to war. 
true to God's word. The Philistines come at the Israelites as an irresistible force, and Israel flees. Philistinian archers overtake Saul's position. We see that he has not fled. He's standing his ground, but they wound him very badly. Saul commands his armor-bearer to kill him. He is afraid of being killed and then his body ridiculed by the, the Philistines. Um, the poor armor-bearer, himself, the poor guy, out of his wits with fear, he can't do it. So Saul falls on his own sword and the poor armor-bearer does likewise. And it is profoundly ironic that Saul ends up killing himself. God didn't kill him. The Philistines didn't kill him. Samuel didn't kill him. The clairvoyant didn't kill him. The armor bearer didn't kill him. Nobody killed him except him. He killed himself. Why, theologically speaking, why, theologically speaking, did Saul do this? Well, basically, Saul did this because he had misunderstood God. He interpreted a word of judgment as a word of condemnation. You see, when God announces a judgment, he always does it in advance. Why do you think he might do that? Well, he always announces his judgment in advance in order to give people time to change their mind, time to clean up their act, time to repent, to confess. Um, time to negotiate a better deal. I mean, what do you do when you discover that God is your enemy? It's actually probably the biggest question of the Bible. What do you do when you discover that God is your enemy? Do you run away from him? No, you run to him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When you discover that God is your enemy, you run to him. You, tr- you, 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 you start the conversation. You, you You keep the conversation going. You negotiate. So many people in the Old Testament discover that you can run to God and negotiate with him. I mean, Abraham, Moses, David, Jonah. There's a whole book on it. Hezekiah. To name but a few, it is inexcusable that Saul doesn't know that at the end of chapter 28. Actually, he still has time to change God's mind. And Saul does have time. Theologically speaking, he's got two chapters worth of time. That, that's, that's long enough for Saul to find David, renounce the kingship, strip himself of his royal robes, something we've seen that he can already do when it suits him, put David in charge. That, that, that's fundamental. That's fundamental to what God is saying to Saul. God is saying to Saul, David is my anointed one. David is my Messiah. If you're not reconciled to him, you're not reconciled to me. If you're not friends of my Messiah, you're not my friend. You've got to recognize my Messiah. That's the key issue. Saul has time to do that. He's got time to put David in charge, flee to the tabernacle, lie there, face down the dirt and sackcloth. Another thing we know that Saul can do when actually it suits him. Even when he started losing the battle, there was time. Even when he was wounded, there was still time. A few Bibles tell us that Saul was wounded critically, which is a reasonable translation of the Hebrew, which simply says that Saul was wounded very badly. But wounded critically may introduce a misunderstanding. The narrator is not telling us that Saul has received injuries he can't survive. We don't know that. The narrator knows that nothing is impossible for God. The narrator is telling us that Saul has received injuries that are serious enough to prevent him from either escaping or defending himself. But even badly injured, there's still hope and there's still time. 
God can heal any injury. Furthermore, twice David has found himself in the hands of the Philistines and twice he has survived. The second time, he thrived. David could talk his way out of this. Why can't Saul? David knows what it's like to stare death in the face and still trust God. Why can't Saul? David, we know, we know he once stared death in the face and he prayed, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head, my oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. 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 Saul's death is never inevitable. Until Saul makes it so. That's why it's ironic. Saul heard a word of judgment, but he treated it as a word of condemnation. Saul heard a word from God, but actually, you know what? He treated it just as though it was a word from Satan. Saul died because he did not, could not, would not trust God's character. That God is loving, good, able to save, willing to save, willing to forgive, that he is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth and, and the 77th. <laughs> and in light of that, every decision that Saul makes in these chapters is actually a direct insult to God. He, he's living his life as though, he's, as though he needs to procure his own welfare. And actually, that's very insulting to God. Every decision proclaims the truth as Saul sees it, that actually God is not good, not loving, not forgiving, not able to save, not willing to save. Saul's persistence in his sin not only kills himself, it kills his sons and many others, but perhaps most significantly, it insults God's character. Now, the character of God has been revealed for us fully and exactly in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. If you you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And Jesus answers the two major concerns we might have with this passage. Again, those two concerns are, uh, firstly, how are we to understand occult practices like clairvoyance, mediums, spiritists, Ouija boards, seances, fortune tellers, tarot cards, astrology, horoscopes, and the like? And secondly, why wasn't the prophet Samuel in heaven? Again, these answers are interconnected, and I'm going to answer the questions together. Let's start, let's start with first principles. God is a God of the living, not of the dead. Human beings were never created to die, but rather we were created in order to live everlastingly with God. But we sinned, we turned away from God. We believed lies from Satan rather than the truth from God, and in doing so, we insulted God. As this passage shows, the wages of sin is death. That is to say, separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus, who is God with us, Jesus took our punishment, the punishment for our sin. He took it all on himself, on the cross, in order that we might be forgiven for the purpose of reconciliation. And in reconciliation, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift that guarantees eternal life. 
Jesus rose from the dead on the third day as proof that these things are true and real. What this means is that now, therefore, there is no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Jesus, the Holy Spirit who gives us life has set us free. The Holy Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death. It holds no power over us. Where is Samuel now? He's in heaven. Why so? Well, because he needed a savior. Jesus is his savior. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When did Samuel change from being in Sheol to in heaven? I've got no idea at all. I'm not sure I would understand the answer even if I was told. But actually, although Samuel was a prophet who knew the Lord from, from Yehi, he needed a savior. And God gave him one in Christ Jesus. Um, Christ Jesus also answers the concern of occult spiritual practices. All occult practices are sinful and dangerous because they invite Satan to speak very directly into our lives, though usually through unclean spirits or demons as intermediaries. Um, What often happens, perhaps even usually what happens, is that when a human being dabbles in such a thing like tarot cards or a horoscope or something, they're fed snippets of information that are either true or seem true. And the result for the human being is that they feel that they are now in possession of superior knowledge that puts them in a position of power. That's the hook. And the knowledge was the bait. And once the hook is set, that person is just reeled in like a fish, all the time moving further and further away from Jesus, from Jesus in whom is both truth and wisdom and life and wholeness and fullness of life. The trap closes when Satan speaks condemnation into people's lives. And and that's what he just loves to do. He loves to accuse. He loves to condemn. That's what his name means. And the plain fact of the matter is that when people believe a lie from Satan, it is actually tremendously powerful and tremendously destructive in their lives. Um, Just as um, a banal example, but for example, if Satan ever tells you you're going to die in a car crash, it's incredibly important not to believe him. Ask the Lord Jesus to rebuke the origin of that thought or that word, because the truth is is that your life is in Christ's hands and only he knows. So if you've ever been involved in the occult, any of those things that I've mentioned or listed, it's very important to renounce that, to confess it, to repent of it, to turn away from it, to hate it, to get rid of anything associated with it. But of course, I'm not just talking of the, of the occult. I mean, the plain fact of the matter is that most human beings are well-practiced at listening to Satan and believing him Most of us are well practiced in that art before we leave childhood. Commonly, unclean spirits use the truth or snippets of true things, especially sins, shortcomings, failures, things we perceive to be our Achilles heel or weaknesses. They use these things in our minds to inspire shame, guilt, feelings of rejection, 
unworthiness, inferiority, self-hatred, fear, worry, anxiety, etc., etc., leading to condemnation. Most of us are well-practiced at listening to these voices. David struggled with those voices. David struggled with this stuff. I struggle with this stuff. It is unusual not to struggle with this stuff. Psalm 13, for the director of music, a psalm of, a psalm of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I'm going to sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. The Psalms show us that David struggled with this stuff, and he struggled with this stuff in prayer, and in prayer he was reminded of the truth, truths that set him free. Psalm 103, um, a psalm of, of David. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases and redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion and satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. What's David practicing and practicing and practicing? He's practicing the truth that actually in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. In Christ Jesus there's no condemnation. In Christ Jesus we are loved, known, accepted, approved of. Protected as precious. Delighted in. What was that we sang? Something with the cuddling bit? Yeah. Safe in his arms. <laughs> we are never abandoned, not for a second. Weaknesses turned into assets. Curses turned into blessings. Blunders turned into opportunities. Sin and death, their power broken in Christ Jesus by the cross. The point of this sermon, therefore, the point of this sermon, therefore, is not never give up. There's always hope. Nor is the point of this sermon, feel better about life. Um, rather, the point of this sermon is, never give up on Christ. Even if you've given up on life, never give up on Christ. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. I will keep my eyes on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to Sheol, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God be praised. Amen.